back to the latest episode of the Unmapped Podcast. On this podcast, we talk about life, upbringing, education, ideas, morals, current events, politics, passions, and more. Today, my guest is Becca De Gregorio. She's 23, graduated from Boston University with a degree in journalism. She's currently working as a freelance podcast producer, and she plans on creating her own podcast called The Grandma Files. Thank you for being here, Becca. Yeah, no problem. Should I tell you that I am newly 24? 24. I thought it was 23. I just turned 24. Okay, I thought that was the 23rd birthday. Do you want to redo it? or should you, we just... No, no, we're okay. Cool. Once once I do the intro, we're already rolling. We're All already right. going in. Yeah, that's fine. Um, I'm a little I'm nervous. I'm at the point where I'm not really like, you know, I'm just... Sometimes I answer like 21, 22, yeah, it's, all of it's, a sudden I'm 24. Once you so. pass 20, 21, it's like there's no milestones. Like when you hit 18, you're like, okay, legally I can drive. Mm. I have a license. When you're 21, it's like, oh, I could drink. And then after that, it's like, I'm just still alive. I'm still, yeah. I'm still going. Mm-hmm. Unless um, you care a lot about renting a car. Renting That's, a car? Oh, yes. yeah, because the insurance. Me, me and my friend, we went to L.A. because we were newly 21-year-olds. Mm-hmm. Our insurance was the, – the the amount we paid was astronomically higher than it needed to be. Oh, it was yeah. like the car was like maybe 300 and then the amount for the insurance was like 400 Yeah. It was like more That's for the I insurance than it was for the car. It was so mm-hmm. unfair. Um, so this is my first recording in a year. I do have questions, a lot of things that I want to talk about. I'm going to be completely honest. I'm nervous. I'm sweaty. We're going to see how it goes. Okay, We're going to try I'm to go friend. for the, the entire time. Oh, no, no, of course, of <laughs> course. Um, it's just been so long since I recorded and we're in a yeah. real studio now. Mm-hmm. And like the pressure's on me where it's like not in my dorm room where yeah. it's like, oh, cool. My pajamas are like on the side there and it's not on the camera. Mm-hmm. It's like we're in a real studio. Yeah. Um, the first thing I kind of wanted to get into with you is that you're currently a freelance podcast producer. And I feel like that's not, correct me if I'm wrong, that's not something where you're like, I want to do this particular thing. You know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's like no, people are like, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to be an architect. No one's yeah. like, I want to be a freelance podcast producer. Absolutely not. Too many words. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it's a very cool job. And I think it's very interesting, especially, you know, we're in this class and like we know Thanks. there's a future in it. Mm-hmm. But I think the transition into it must have been very different and interesting and especially because you had that journalism background, mm-hmm. I'm wondering how you made that decision to transition, decision to transition, that rhymes, uh, that decision to become a freelance producer and kind of the steps that took you there. Sure. I mean, when you talk about it being unmapped, how far back do you want me to go? I mean, because... So I used to do, um, when I did recordings before, I would do like all the way from the beginning, like where they started, family life and stuff yeah. like that. Um, but it's completely up to you. It's like, where do you want to start your story? Because I realize it's each person has a different place where they started and they see like that like pivotal moment. Yeah. And I think it's easier for me to just be like, hey, where do you want to start? What do you think is like an in- interesting part for you to kind of begin your story? Mm. Yeah, I mean, not to toot my own horn, <laughs> but I spoke at my college, not my college, scratch that. My high school graduation okay. um, and my speech was about not knowing what I wanted to be, um, which is like a little too perfect not to start there. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember I like I, I wasn't a valedictorian, but the way my high school graduation worked was that the valedictorian spoke and then people could submit speeches and the student body could vote on a speech that they wanted to hear. So I was like, the people's vote. (laughs) And it was this speech about not knowing what uh, I wanted to be when I grew up. Mm -hmm. And I guess other people resonated with that. And um, it was about how when I was a kid, like 
the first thing I wanted to be was a fairy and then a witch. And Wait, then, so like career-wise, you're like, I want to be a fairy. And yeah, because when okay. you're a kid, you think pretty much anything can bring you an income. Yeah, yeah. Um, casting spells or okay. just being pretty. Do you watch, um, what's that movie, Halloween Town? Was that like your favorite movie? Oh, absolutely. I really <laughs> I related to Marty Cromwell from a young age. Um, and, uh, you know, on to like, uh, there was a period of time when I was like, 10 or 11, I wanted to be an archaeologist Mm -hmm. and then an artist and then a writer for the longest period of time. And then the last year of high school, I just decided to change what I liked. I was like, even though I'm a more creative, English, social studies-centric person, I want to be logical and mathematical. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take all the AP science classes and I'm going to go to college for pharmacy. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I went off to college to study chemistry. Mm-hmm. Um, so a quick question. So do, how does your family kind of, because I think I've asked this before a lot, and I think family plays a big role in kind of mm-hmm. how they not, you know, change your mentality on what you think you want to do, but like yeah. kind of like nudge you in a direction. Like, yeah. do you think they ever played a part in any of your decisions? It seems like they were kind of a little bit more like, you know, took a step back and let you figure it out. Yeah. My parents have always been very hands off with me. I think that comes from being a third child, too. Okay. I mean, like I was their third kid and I was also their most well-behaved kid. Mm-hmm. So pretty much no input. They were like, Becca will do what yeah. she's going to do. Um <laughs> <laughs> didn't drink, no drugs in, in mm-hmm. high school. Um, yeah, you're good, you're goody two shoes. I was a goody two shoes, <laughs> just because I was like, I knew I place. So I was a goody yeah. two shoes kid. And uh, it's funny though, you mentioned parental input because when I decided to change my interests right before college and and try and be this mathy, sciencey mm-hmm. person, uh, both my parents were like, "What." They were like, that's ridiculous. Really? So they knew it was like probably not going to be your thing? Or they yeah. thought it was like off character, if anything. Yes. Yeah. They were like, Becca, <laughs> you know how much you love <laughs> painting and reading books and discussing those books mm-hmm. and other things not related to that. Um, but they also let me, t- uh, they, let, they set me free to, you know, find out for myself that it wasn't going to work. So I went off to college. I studied chemistry for a year. I did fine in classes, um, but it was very daunting to realize I was going to have to get through so much material in order to contribute to chemistry. Right, like I guess. To the actual like scientific literature community post college. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I saw it as like a giant stack of books, and like I would have to like climb through it for years and years just to add like a little pamphlet on mm-hmm. top. And I was so like, pamphlet. I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, so from there, I I decided to go to my favorite professor my freshman year, one of my writing professors. Um, he taught a class uh, about like scary short stories, and mm-hmm. I just thought it was super fun. And Wait, the whole class was for scary short stories? Yes. You know those like freshman year seminar classes that yeah, are like yeah. I mean, weirdly they're, specific? They're, well. I feel like they're, they're the prerequisite ones so are just like required for a major. Yeah. I feel like they were more general, not specific for my college at least. Oh, okay. Well, at Boston University, okay. <laughs> where I went, you had to take these prerequisite writing classes. Um, but there were a lot of them and you were in a small classroom setting mm-hmm. and they're all really specific topics. I had some friends that took poetry classes, some friends that took 
yoga classes, like writing about yoga. Like writing about not yeah. just like learning about yoga. No, like writing, writing about, about yoga. What do you write about yoga? I don't, I don't know. know. I wasn't in that one. <laughs> okay. I was in scary short stories okay. with okay. Professor Ted Kehoe, and I marched to his office toward the end of my freshman year, and I was like, look, I think I want to change my major. Mm-hmm. I just think I could like something a lot better. Mm-hmm. And he pulled out a sheet of paper with every major offered at BU and was like, great, so out of all of these, you want to do chemistry. And I was like, no. Mm-hmm. He was like, well, what do you want to switch to? And I was like, I think writing. Mm-hmm. And you know, as listeners can probably hear from now, um, he said, well, here's the thing. Your sentences are really long. If you want to make them shorter, you should go over to the journalism department. Mm-hmm. And I was like, ouch, but okay. <laughs> I pretty much listen to like anything an adult says. Maybe. Right. So, Especially at that time when you're in college and you're just like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I had one meeting with the head of the journalism department. Um, he was this kooky guy named um, Will McKean. He had like a super messy office. Mm-hmm. Um he gave me a good vibe and I was like, okay, I don't know if this will be my passion, but I think I'll like it better than chemistry. And did okay, did the student newspaper thing. Um, so before you got into college, right, so right after high school, you yeah. had your speech, you know, talking about you don't know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. You chose that major in in chemistry, right? Mm-hmm. Um Kind of was there a, a particular class, or was it just a general like the class structure that first year, like the whole time, was I didn't you know you didn't enjoy it, you didn't want to do it, and that's where you're like, all right, I don't want to switch over. It was I think you said it yeah. was the the thinking of how you can uh, add more to the community later on, right? Yeah, I mean, I just saw the really basic fundamental building blocks I was working on in these like first year chemistry classes, mm-hmm. and I was like, what? We're still on like atomic numbers and mm-hmm. like I got to get to like ochem and then pchem right, and right. all this stuff before I like discover a new that molecule. Like actually, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that it wasn't a terrible first year but I did see people around me so you, having greater passions for what okay, they were studying. Got it. Yeah cuz there are a lot of cuz even at Stony Brook I remember there were a lot of courses that were known to be weed out courses. By yeah. like second year, it's and like these take, were weed out courses. Okay, so like the first some of the classes that you take in that first year were the mm-hmm. ones that you knew. Like people will talk about them, being like, "All right, these like if you don't enjoy this, like you you got to leave." Like yeah, you're not like any of this later on down the line. Yeah, and what was weird about those courses, um, it being like Gen Chem and like some calc courses I was mm-hmm. in, um, was that like they were seen as weed out in the way that if you didn't get through them, like if you didn't get if you didn't do well enough, then you probably couldn't go further. Yeah, yeah. I did fine in them, but I didn't like them. Um, so it was like a, this wasn't fun, mm-hmm. and college is supposed to be fun thing. Right. And I guess if I want to get my money's worth, I should study something I even mildly enjoy more. Mm-hmm. So all of that is to say I switched to journalism. I liked it just fine, but I didn't really like it until about halfway through college when I had my first radio internship. And I was like, okay, this is a little different. This comes a little more naturally to me. Um, Mostly because it was a type of journalism that was way more centralized on the interview and talking to people. And that was the only part of journalism that I felt good at. Okay. I never felt good at writing articles, never felt good at knowing what's a good news story, but I always felt good at meeting people face to face and talking to them. them. Okay. Um, And from there, I just, you know, 
interned in public radio until the end of college, worked my first job in public radio. What was the first first job that you had worked? And this was after you had finished college? Yeah. So I graduated college a semester early. Mm -hmm. Um, Even with the major uh, change? Yeah, I don't oh, know how it happened. Impressive. It's <laughs> good. I don't know how it happened, dude. Um, one day, my advisor was just like, "Oh, you can," and I was like, "And well, this I will." Is one thing that one of my friends, he actually transferred to Sony from Boston University. Oh, okay. And he told me that at BU, there's a lot more of a, a like student advisor relationship that they try to build. Mm. Probably because it's a private school and you're paying, you know, up the ass you yeah. know, to get in mm-hmm. and uh, be, be able to go there. But he said that basically the first year he would sit down with someone like an advisor and they would mm-hmm. like break down like what he needs to do, how he needs to go about it. Mm-hmm. Is that true for like, you know, every student in any major? Or? So it depends on your major okay. because the advisors are separated out by major. Mm-hmm. So some of them are in small enough departments that you do get time with your advisor. I actually got a lot of time with my chemistry advisor. And then when I switched to journalism, there's a lot of journalism students. Um, I actually never had a face-to-face meeting with my journalism advisor. She never answered her email. Yeah, that sounds more like the advisors I'm used to. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So the one that told me I could graduate early was kind of like this interim one, this like substitute one that anyone could go to, Mm -hmm. just like stationed in the office. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. They're just like there for like general help. Yeah, 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 totally. Um, they, they were like, I remember those advisors being so upsetting whenever I'd go in. Because, like, I'd go in and, like, I know my questions. I know what I need out from, like, the mm-hmm. that discussion that I'm going to have with them. And I would go and I would sit down and they would just be like, you should just quit. I'm like, this is this doesn't look like it's going to happen. And I'd be like, why? This really? makes perfect sense. And why? Like, I don't know. Is there some, I think it's because they're just – they have this large inflow of students every single day. Mm-hmm. And each one of them has a million mm-hmm. questions. And at some point, they're just like, well, obviously, they weren't as harsh as I'm making it out to be. But like, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, but at one point, I remember like sitting down and I had a question. They just like would not want to answer it. Like, just, you know, give me a straight breakdown of like what I need to do. They'd be like, well, if it doesn't make sense, you should just like, you know, try something else. And that was mm. it. Like, they kind of like mutter off and like fall down on their like, you know, tone of voice. And, you know, that's it. And mm. they're just trying to, you know, bring the next student and try to answer their questions and move on with it. Dang. Well, I guess yeah. Stony Brook's kind of big, right? Yeah, there's a lot of people. I yeah. think... I mean, I guess if you see that many students, it would... A day of advising them would feel more like their data points than mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah. I'm yeah. sorry you had that experience. No, it's... Yeah, it's... I hate... I hate... <laughs> we sh- made it. We graduated. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't like talking crap about Stony Brook. It's like, I love my time there. It's mm-hmm. great university and all that stuff. But, like... Probably like every episode, I've talked like some crap about this school. Hey, that's cool. Because <laughs> uh, I think they need to fix a, a lot of things. But mm-hmm. I'm still at the school through this program, technically. So uh-huh. you know, they've done great things for me <laughs> from the inside, yeah. folks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you've done. So you did journalism, and then you got like a full time career, right? So working in radio, um, yeah. doing the interviewing. Yeah. So I, um, my first job out of college, I actually interned for them. My last semester of college was producing on a public radio show in Boston. Uh, it's called Open Source with Christopher Lydon. Mm-hmm. It was the first podcast. Um, like ever? I, I know. That no. doesn't really mean anything <laughs> to people. Yeah, actually. No way. Um, the host, Chris Lydon, he, he was the first essentially person to – take his radio show and turn it into an mp3 the next day mm-hmm. um his he partnered with a friend of his at mit who developed the rss feed oh um, so yeah this was like back in like yield 2002 i think 
Um, so it's not like it's not like significant history, yeah, yeah. but he, it's part of history. Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> so I worked there um, and um, I started, you know, producing there right before the 2016 election mm-hmm. and then worked there up until last spring. So spring of 2018. So it was a rough uh, almost two yeah, years. That's an interesting time to work to on be... a politics show. Yeah, it was an... a politics and arts show. Because I remember, yeah. I was never really into politics, uh, even in college, until mm-hmm. around the 2016 election. Because mm-hmm. everyone around me, well, one one of my uh, roommates, he was a college Republican president of uh, you know, the club on campus, mm-hmm. and um, he always had ideas. He always brought them. He's a really cool guy. I love him. He actually probably changed me a little bit towards uh, the conservative side. And talking hmm. more about the positions that I probably would not have, never have talk, talked about. But uh, I remember in 2016, it wasn't just people who were into politics that were talking about politics. It was everyone. Oh, yeah. There was an urgency around it. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. like, what's going on? What are we doing? Like, it, it was it was like havoc all the time. So yeah. It's probably a, a hectic time to be in radio and, and you know, to, to talk about politics on top of that. It totally. Just had to have been a, an experience. Yeah. Especially because, you know, I think it's easy to develop your political stance in college, mm-hmm. like college is such a Petri dish for that. I mean, it's like, well, what if I really cared about this today mm-hmm. or that tomorrow and, and that kind of stuff. And on top of that, it's people who are trying to find something to believe in because yeah. they're not really sure. Yeah. Um, like going into college, I think every student goes in or like every kid um, essentially, you know, goes in with their parents' political mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, for me coming from an immigrant family, right, like I went in like super liberal, democratic, like mm-hmm. I never thought of the other side ever. Mm-hmm. But I, again, I had no idea what politics were in general. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know, you know, what side had what. I was just there. I was just saying I was a Democrat because my parents did. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So I think a lot of students have that. And then when they're there. They get the time and knowledge probably to figure it out more. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times they also kind of, I think, jump into a bandwagon of representation and want to pick a side. And that becomes part of the debate. Right. And and I feel like I was somewhere in that mix in college because I was involved with a lot of people that were um, very involved in activism and – I somehow minored in political science. Okay. Um, so you still finished on before you finished the semester I earlier. Did, with the minor I did. I did. A side note to backtrack to that advisor meeting. I learned in the same meeting that I could graduate early, and that if I took one more class, I would minor in political, in political science. science. Okay. To which I laughed in his face and said, "Okay, sure." sure. Yeah. Um, so I I was in college, like trying to figure out my stances on things, being really firebrand about certain things, but also trying to not like publicly. Politic that much because I was a journalism student mm-hmm. and there was this um, rhetoric in the journalism department that was, you know, if you want to be taken seriously or hired by a big media organization, uh, that you should um, swallow your political voice a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, all of this in the mix of the fact that, like, I think I didn't really decide what my politics were until right after college as I was producing on this radio show in the mix of all that crazy 2016 Mm -hmm. madness. Like it forced me to like really clarify for myself what I care about, what voices I need to listen to more of and what ones have been in my ear my whole life and have been blinding me from 
other people I need to listen to. And basically, it was an amazing experience to work on a politics show at that time. Um, but that was also in the frenzy of learning how to work in like live public radio. Mm -hmm. It was a podcast, but also a live radio show. And I had a really technical role. I like was the recordist. I was kind of the right hand to our engineer. There were times where if I like pressed the wrong button, the whole show would Just go to collapses. shit. <laughs> Sorry, can I can I swear yeah, on this podcast? Oh, okay, good. Of course, Great. it's encouraged here. <laughs> um, How would I have an audience if I was able to curse on this podcast? Not nah. cool, cool, cool. <laughs> um, and uh, all these sorts of things. I was handed, you know, lots of responsibility at the age of twenty-two, mm -hmm. and I also felt so lucky to be there. Um, that it created a lot of pressure for me and it also made me not express myself in ways that I wish I could have. I, as know. in like you were – you felt as though you were very lucky to be in this position and like mm -hmm. have all this responsibility but at the same time it was so much responsibility that you're like I kind of overwhelmed with everything that was going on. Yeah, yeah. I was so concerned with doing every part of my job correctly that I kind of killed a lot of my creativity you know, my executive producer and my host would be like, Becca, what show ideas do you have? And I'd be so nervous to say the wrong one that I wouldn't say anything a lot right. of the time. So you ask about becoming an independent producer. Once I left that job, I moved home to my parents' house in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for right. a summer, moved here about five months ago and, you know, decided to do this program because a big part of it was to make our own show. And I had had a show idea floating in my mind for a long time. And independent producing has like tasked me with being like a self-starter and really deciding day to day what projects I want to take on and working on that side of myself as a producer that I think I didn't in my first mm -hmm. public radio job, which is like standing up for myself, advocating for being myself. Independent. Being independent. Right. Yeah. So um, – yeah, it, it feels very much like a makeshift job, but that's kind of in line with like my entire story of what I thought I would be like. From a young age, I knew that I didn't have a clear passion. Mm -hmm. I liked too many things. Okay. I played like every sport and I loved singing and reading and writing. So I knew whatever I wanted my... I yeah, I want to be a witch. a witch. Exactly. I took a part in Halloween Town eventually. <laughs> <laughs> All the things. I was weirdly obsessed with the BBC. Like, I just knew that, like, whatever I would pick would be something that I made for myself. So this whole freelance producing thing, yeah, is a career that's kind of cobbled together. Um, so how long? That's how it worked out. Did oh, Sorry. Okay. For right now, yeah. Um, how, how long were you at that position um, and was there like one moment that you can think of that was like, this is, you know, this is it. Like I've had enough. I need to go home. I need to like rethink of the situation and what I want to do and where I want to be. Um, or was it just like, you know what, this isn't what it, what I wanted to do. This isn't where, you know, I, I wanted to be at this point and kind of, I, I want my creative creativity to come back and be a part of everything that I do. Mm. Um, you know, was there a moment or was it just like the conglomeration of all the time that you were there? Mm. -mm. That's a hard question because I think there were several moments okay. and there were several angles as to why I left. Yes, I did feel creatively like I wasn't executing my ideas. Um, but I also felt 
mildly disrespected in that workplace. I was overworked and underpaid for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also disagreed with the host of our show a lot. And the host of our show was the voice of our show. So we had a couple times where um, I would finally express an idea. He would really butt back and there'd be nothing I could do about it. Um, I think what's weird about producing on shows is that it all depends on how much you care about the project because there's nowhere to go beyond being the producer. Like, unless the host keels over and dies, you know, you're already kind of at the top, you know. It's not really like a ladder. So once I was done with working on that show, it was kind of like a why stick around sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I wasn't going to murder the host. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. Um, but you you went back home and you took some time. And I think that's a really important thing that a lot of people don't do anymore mm-hmm. is I think especially that's if you're – the best thing you can do if your parents are down with it. Yeah, if they're if they're cool with yeah. it and they're – you know, they give you that, that time to think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think a lot of people, especially in New York on the East Coast, uh, a lot of people on the West Coast, people who are in like the high high-intensity cities um, – I think there's this go, go, go mentality and Mm -hmm. people don't take time to really just sit down and think for a second Mm -hmm. and like figure out like what is important to me, what matters. And um, I always have this argument with a couple of my friends, like all my friends are like STEM, you know, like, you know, math, Mm -hmm. uh, engineering, doctors, stuff like that. And I always took like, I took philosophy courses a couple of times in in, in college. You give me philosophy course vibes, Imran. (laughs) Thank Mm -hmm. you. Um, and I think that took a, a larger, uh, um, had a larger impact on my personality and my kind of growth through college than anything else that I had mm-hmm. taken. And um, and I always get in an argument with a friend. He'd always question the value of philosophy. And I tell him, I was like, that, like the, the moment in time where the Greeks started to have the freedom to think, to sit down and not have to worry about food or resources or all of these things. And they had like that renaissance period of writing, mm-hmm. reading and like figuring out society. That's an integral moment in like human evolution where we started, you know, finding reason. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite word, I, I like saying it because I, I feel like part of me feels like I'm a douchebag for saying it. But part of me is like, I want to feel like, <laughs> oh, like man, a red. the word. Um, it's a Greek word. It means uh, it's uh, eudaimonia and it means fu- it means fulfillment in, in Greek. Mm-hmm. And when you want to find something that, you know, is, you're passionate about, you care about and, um, you know, actually matters to you, it, mm-hmm. you need to like take your time and think. Because mm-hmm. if you're always go, 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 and you're always just doing something, you're never going to take the time to find what, you know, matters to you. Mm. Um, but a lot of people don't do that anymore. I think they're scared uh, to take that break and, you know, take the time off because then people yeah. will ask you, it's like, hey, what are you doing? Yeah. I like that concept a lot because, like, it it's the concept that if if you think hard enough about yourself and your past experiences, then you'll know what you want. And that seems very empowering to me as someone who never felt like, (laughs) yeah, but I I put my phone on do not disturb right when I walked in here. I just feel like I've never known what I wanted. And I've always been really jealous of people with like gifts and talents or very clear passions. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like that idea that you can think your way 
out of confusion. I really, I really thing. think, I really think you because that's like all I can do. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I cannot um, play piano. Right. Yeah, I have, I have one. My older roommate in college, he, he can, he can play the guitar phenomenally. Mm. He recently he can sing. He knows how to play the piano. He can play every sort of like <laughs> sure. string. People instrument. steal all the I talent. Know, I know, mm-hmm. and like he knew it's like oh like he's like one of those guys that he's gonna get famous one day. And he's just going to be like, yeah, I always kind of love guitar. And like, I knew music was oh, my thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. One of those people. Yeah, those uh, are the people I'm so jealous of. Yeah. And those are the people that like I've, you know, interviewed for shows. And it's just like. Because oh. for them. And this I'll is I'll just the be reason. here asking questions at people like you my whole life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the reason that they inevitably will find success in one form or another is because they worked at it for years without really thinking about it because it was their passion. Mm-hmm. Um, to be good at anything, you need to put time in. Mm-hmm. No matter what it is, no matter the art form, no matter oh, the yeah. project, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. You need to put time in to be good at it mm-hmm. and for it to come to fruition and other people to value it where it's like it can become your thing. Mm-hmm. And for those people, it's like usually they start at such a young age that they've had like a decade of, of experience and, right. you know, um, uh, practice that they're now good at it and then they yeah. keep doing it and then they become that thing even though they didn't really think about it part of me like wishes like my, my mom was like I, I love how hands-off my parents were they're like the greatest parents in the world and everyone says that about their parents if they even mildly like mm-hmm. them but like i don't know would have been awesome too if like my mom was like this crazy like ice dancing mom yeah, yeah. could have been like in the freaking olympics right yeah, now yeah. or something yeah, you know that's another thing there's so many sports and like, mom why didn't you force me to ice dance yeah, yeah um my friend used to watch dance moms and get oh uh, dance moms him, him and this other girl um that was a friend of ours they would drink and watch dance moms uh-huh. and i would come over sometimes like what the fuck are you guys doing like what are you what's mm-hmm. going on here they're like watching and, greatness happen yeah that's what <laughs> that's their responses would be like you need to watch this and i'm mm-hmm. like why like what's what's going on they're like look at this little kid look how amazing they are did you watch it i watched parts of it yeah uh, and were the parents the pa- i was drawn in the mm-hmm. drama there's something about drama that's always drawing in like oh, you're yeah. always well, like, reality tv on. is my favorite slice of tv well i think that's all of america i think that's why the kardashians exist i i I guess I, th- I feel like a lot of people watch some reality TV, but I feel like I'm in a specific group of people who are like most of the TV I watch mm-hmm. is reality TV. Hmm. Interesting. And if you think most of America is it's spending most of their TV watching time watching reality TV, then that is like scary. I think it is scary. Well, I think that's why the the whole this, going back to politics. I think that's why the the current kind of political climate is so normalized for a lot of people, and they just. I, not not normalized in the sense that it is normal, but they don't think about it too much, and they're like, "It's just going, it's happening." It's because we we've seen like drama so often that we're like, "All right, it's just you know them doing a thing," and it's mm-hmm. become a little bit more like not as crazy. Like it's become a little bit more uh, normalized in the sense that we don't think about it as much. Um, what do you mean, by, like not think about it as much? Not think about like current affairs as much? It's. Uh, What's a good way to put this? Um, Getting all journalist on grass. No, no, yeah, no, yeah, you got me. Yeah. Um, well, I, th- I think normalized in the sense that when we talk about it, we don't it being the political it being scene. the political affair, the scene, mm-hmm. the things that are happening. We talk about it without the weight that it deserves. Sometimes, in my opinion. Uh, but this morning, I saw uh, I was going to get my haircut, and mm-hmm. the news was on. And he was talking about the Miller investigation mm-hmm. and all the things that are happening. And yeah. The fact that the you report know, coming out today. Yeah. He's not, you know, he didn't get exonerated, but he did get vindicated, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. There are some people in the barbershop. They looked up. They're like, oh, OK, cool. And then they look down. 
That was it. Like that was the the, the weight that they had on the situation. Yeah. Whereas like I was sitting there the whole time. I'm like, this is important. Like I want to pay attention to what's going on. Like, like what happened? You know, what's the report going to say? What are they doing now? Are they opening up the investigation again? Right. Like all those factors for some people, and I'm not saying all. I think for some people, when I say normalize, I think they have stopped wanting to pay attention because it's just an everyday thing now. It being ma- like it madness, being, yeah, madness, chaos yeah, and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like from I something that was at first disheartening when I worked on a political radio show, and it, it was disheartening in the way that you're describing. I was like, oh my gosh, people are numbing so quickly. Mm-hmm. That um, that's the word I was looking for, and I just could not find. Yeah, it. but then I realized after you know working on this show every week having people come on and and experts yeah but essentially barf out what they need to to get through whatever the political moment of that week is i started to realize with guests and with myself that like you know you can't give weight to every chaotic thing that is happening like it's a means of survival to not i mean the Mueller report has been a story for us for what like 12 months now it's been a year over a year for sure yeah Yeah, and you know the idea of it coming out has been a story for two months now you know we get this news that you know Mueller's done it's ready gives it to Barr. Barr says there's uh, no collusion, um, but this whole confusion over exoneration thing. And and what stinks is that the longer it is a story, the more niche it sounds, the more people associate like, oh, that's for smart people Mm -hmm. to stay in touch on. And, you know, sometimes I'll open up my like New York Times app or like go on Twitter and see a story for the first time and I'll have like fresh eyes on it and I'll be like oh yeah I'm ready to read up on this but also if it's something that's been in my life all year and that you know I have reason to not be super hopeful for Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who hasn't been hopeful for what the Mueller report would find for Mm -hmm. probably like six months now you know it's it you can't ask people to care about everything. Mm-hmm. That's true. And and I think people selectively care about what they do issue to issue because I think focus is what is important to people right now. Like we can't be informed on and change everything. We have to know our lanes, mm-hmm. you know. So, so do, do you think that that is – this is going back to Dance Moms, right? And like oh, yeah. The, oh, the, speaking the of dr- Dance Moms, I don't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> okay. um, Dance Moms takes place like – somewhat near where i grew up mm-hmm. oh, and really? one of the dance kids went to high school with me oh would you look at that mm-hmm. taylor <laughs> that's that's, that's so, <laughs> so taylor's mom um time back in <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so going back to like the, the drama aspect of that mm-hmm. i think the reason why i wanted to bring that up and then tie that into politics is that i think media has become because we we, in, we live in this weird clickbait time mm-hmm. where like we need the, you know, we do the same thing where we need our, our, you know, whatever we're creating to reach people. So I think media has played into that aspect of trying to get people engaged, trying to get people like real, like get them reeled in Mm -hmm. that they have made it that more, that much more dramatic because if not, then people aren't going to pay attention. And then you have that issue of a year long of 
things just being thrown at you and then you get people so okay so this is this becomes a question is that do you think it's the media's fault you know constantly throwing the information in any form or facet that they can to the people that the people are becoming less or would like to become less involved or is it that the people because they're seeing it's in general are just becoming less involved because they see it so often Mm. so you're asking if i blame the way media acts these days Mm -hmm. to our behavior with media yeah um versus the people changing their attitude in general uh because well actually that would play a part in the media itself feeding so it becomes like this feedback loop of like media gets yeah sure i mean people get caught in their echo chambers because a lot of us get our news online and Mm -hmm. algorithms filter through what they think we would like to read right um you obviously know that. I sounded yeah. so teacherly. No, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know these things. Um, I don't I don't know. I, I, I Relatives ask me this shit like every time I go home. They're like, so Becca, fake news. Fake. <laughs> I'm like, what? What's the end of your question? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's really hard for me to say because sometimes I think because of my journalism education, I am bad at speaking on this or bad at relating to people on this. Like what the last four years have taught me, like actively working in audio and then like in journalism school before that, is that like Every media source has a motive and you should read their content based on that motive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even some of your most highly regarded newspapers um, have funding from people that you wouldn't even realize. I mean, Washington Post get, uh, is very tied in with um, the NSA and other sorts of organizations with the police state and stuff like that and the new york times gets a lot of its ads funded from luxury apartments around new york city and some of their reporting on gentrification isn't the greatest Mm -hmm. and you know all these sorts of things and broadcast journalism is is ultimately like stories told to keep attention so that you keep their channel on and and that isn't an educational motive that's an entertainment motive right so but like that's how i take in media but that's not how i expect other people to take in media like that's what was so weird about working on a politics show during 2016 is that i had to show up to work and think about politics all day and then i would go home and hang out with friends and that's the time of day when a lot of people process the news Mm -hmm. they get home and they're like okay what happened today Let's talk about it. Right. But I would never be in the mood. Like I couldn't be bothered. I'd be like, no, I just processed this for six mm-hmm, hours mm-hmm. for my job. So like I don't know whose fault it is. All I know is that I mean that's a bother. All I know is right? that media organizations should be more transparent about Where they're funding and motive. Right. And that people should care about that because it really does matter, especially after 2016 when I feel like the results caused a lot of reputations for big media organizations. Everyone was like, the New York Times got it wrong and NPR got it right. 
And then that changed how certain places behaved. Like I was at an NPR station after 2016 that was so proud of itself for having survived the 2016 election. Right, I'm right. doing air quotes, yeah. podcast listeners. Yeah, there's, there's a video. We're oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, for the podcast, the listeners. Yeah, of course. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it it led to more rules about how things should go on air. Like there was a period of time where we weren't allowed to have the word liar in our program. Really? It, or lies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But like – what if someone lies? Yeah, yeah. What if, that you know, the you president delete, lies? Yeah, you can't just delete words. <laughs> right. I don't like that. Totally. So, I, I think an important aspect of that is that people don't aggregate information in the way that they should. Mm-hmm. Um, like one of my one of my you know, great responsibilities at the gym that I work at is that when I'm on the floor helping, you know, keep everything clean, mm-hmm. I change channels for some of the people that are on like the treadmills and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. On, the, on their like hamster wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> Honorable job. It's... it's hilarious one okay this is this is a very side note yeah i've never met someone until like two weeks ago that is this upper class where they go can you hand me the channel changer not remote channel the channel changer mind blown i was like what did you just say whoa i was at at first i was like i I didn't even know what she asked me because i've never (laughs) heard someone say that she goes channel changer and i go you mean the remote and i just i gave her the remote but um can I tell you not to interrupt your thought, what, what my family called it? Okay. Um, it. So I'm from Pittsburgh, which mm-hmm. is adjacent to West Virginia, you know, so it's kind of in like Pennsylvania region. And we called it the flicker. The flicker? The flicker. <laughs> like, hand me the flicker. And for some reason, when we would say it, like, everyone's voice would get like a little twangy. Like, twangy? give me the flicker. Flicker. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> anyway, far off from Channel Changer, but go on. Um, the people who asked me to change the channel, um, they would either go Fox or NBC, right? Mm-hmm. If they're one of the news in the morning. And sometimes, this is like not even like just a few times, like 60% of the times, because a lot of them are old people. No offense to old people or anything like that. But right? they're just, they say things without really caring anymore at this point. Like they've given up on like, you know, censoring themselves. Well, some do. Uh, some do. I would imagine, I'm hoping I will when I'm older. Uh, not, I, I don't want to so hurt too. people, yeah. but I would love to care I mean, less. Just, just like the, the fact that like, they don't hold in thoughts as much like Bill, like he's not scared to say his thoughts. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, Bill might listen to this podcast. I love Bill. No. Bill knows we love him. I'm just, you know, don't get mad <laughs> at me. Bill. Uh-huh. I'm just saying, um, that he's more open to like just being him. Mm-hmm. Bill but, is in our fellowship listeners. Yeah. Um, and he is a smooth talking hilarious bostonite man yeah. yes yeah. very boston yeah. um and he he's also gonna have a podcast shout out bill uh mm-hmm. anyways a, a lot of the people they'll have this comment right after i change the channel and it's like if it's usually i either change it from nbc to fox or fox to nbc and they're mm-hmm. like i can't watch this shit and then they'll want the other the other one mm-hmm. and they're like they refuse to get their news from any other source and then there's those few people, the ones that ask for CNN, they're chill. They're always cool people. I don't know what it is. They're just always cool. They don't say anything. They're like, oh, thank you, man. Right. Oh, my God. That's so it's funny ve- you experience it through that way. It's it's really interesting because, like, I started paying attention to it after, you know, probably like the 20th time I got asked. Mm-hmm. And the more I pay attention to it, I started doing, like, a tally in my head and, like, how they the people interacted with me based mm-hmm. on the channel that they had chosen. Mm-hmm. And it's exactly what you would think. Like, it is exactly like what you, you would think those people that watch that channel versus that channel versus CNN, you know, how y- they were portrayed in the media, how those people usually are. Mm. Um, and then it's usually that they're very, very 
independent of any other idea from any other source. They just chose that source, and that's the only one they want to get their info from. Mm. It's just it's just very interesting to see. Mm. Um, but when I had originally mentioned Dance Moms, it was talking about passion. Oh right? yeah. So going back to Dude, passion, I love this Dance Moms thread. <laughs> it's it's a great thread. It's a great thread. <laughs> Uh, so a lot of those people who who are on dancing shows, like soccer players too, um, uh-huh. sports players, they're thrown mm-hmm. into it at such a young age that mm-hmm. they were able to put those years of like work and practice mm-hmm. into something they like or love. Mm-hmm. And then they become so good at it that they can get paid for it. Yeah. So I think it's for those people, they are lucky in the fact that they got thrown into the fire early enough. And in a lot of cases, probably also unlucky because they've been doing it for so long and maybe they didn't want to do it and they become a career. Mm-hmm. But uh that's where I think for those who don't know what they want to do and what their passion is and they're not sure, taking time to just think and like figure it out is an important part mm-hmm. of being happy later on down the line and knowing like that's what you want to do. Like being sure that there's no regret in the choice that you made. Yeah. Um, again, that is a very privileged thing to say because you have to have the resources to, to know, stop pick and your think. things. Yeah. 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 And go to a college where there's all these majors. Exactly. Exactly. That you can switch from as you're as you're thinking, yeah, yeah. like I did. Yeah. Yeah. I also feel like to, I guess to push back on myself about like me feeling like the opposite of someone with like an immediate passion or a gift, like what is fun about audio and like you're realizing this through your own podcast too, is like, there are so many parts of it. So there are so many like little pieces of the task of making a podcast that like, I can see myself as always having liked like I remember the first time I was like tracking a radio piece it was at my first internship in DC what do you, what do you mean by tracking so like, tracking is when you record the parts of a audio piece that you say so like when you're listening to NPR like the host or the reporter who's doing the story will like pop in and out mm-hmm. so when you record that you're tracking you're like reading from a script into a microphone Oh, kind of like it. what you were doing when you were reading your intro in the right, beginning. Right. And I remember the first time I was doing that, like, I got, like, such a buzz from it. It sounds so dorky. No, it's fine. It's cool. Yeah. Huh? And I was like, this is so fun. I love, you know, recording scripts. And then I thought back to, like, what I liked to do when I was really little. And I loved reading aloud when I was little. Like, like just like sitting down reading a book just like oh yeah out loud i read all my books aloud i would line up my stuffed animals and read to <laughs> them and i would pretend to be a teacher my mom's a reading teacher too mm-hmm. so i think i was mimicking her oh, okay and even before i could read my mom has all these videos of like baby me with a book and turning the pages and like babbling like making up the story mm-hmm. in my own language like ah, la, 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 la. <laughs> so like what well, i'm like oh okay you know that is an innate passion like Sounds dumb, but like I love reading aloud, you know, that kind of dumb stuff. And (laughs) when I realized that it it not not to get off track here, but we've um, gone off track many times. (laughs) We've brought it back. It's fine. That's how we go. Is this like a similar off the rails to your other interview? This is exactly how every interview gone has gone. It's just a bunch of random things (laughs) and then I try to just keep it together and Mm -hmm. get to the point that I need to go. Yeah. (laughs) Well, like it's funny, something that confirmed my lack of passion for chemistry. Um came a couple years into studying journalism when I took a summer internship at a small NPR station in central Pennsylvania. And when I lived there, I got a side job working at like a coffee bean roastery. And one of my jobs at the roastery was to like perfectly measure 
like one pound and five pound bags okay. of coffee beans. I thought and, you were going to say the espresso, like, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Have, like, well, I also did like, that. Like, made, yeah, 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 yeah. Made the espresso yeah. drinks, of course. Um, and uh, I was, like, measuring these bags of beans. And, like, a month into the job, for the first time, I perfectly measured, like, a one-pound bag mm-hmm. of beans. And I got such a buzz. <laughs> like, similar to, like, the buzz I get from yeah. reading aloud. And I was like, oh, my God. Is that why I thought I wanted to be a pharmacist? Just measuring things perfectly. Yeah, I love measuring <laughs> shit perfectly. I was like, oh, my God. If I would have known this, I would not have wasted a year it's studying funny. chemistry. Like, oh, it was like such a light bulb moment, like years later. Yeah. Yeah. But now I know how much I love randomly me- measuring shit, mm-hmm. you know, which was fun in labs. You love the life of a, of a person who works out and tracks for macros. Because I actually, my parents think I'm crazy when I do this. I bring a scale out and I measure all my food. Oh, yeah. Because when I'm dieting and I really want to get to a position where I want to be like mm. physique-wise, like I have to like to a T. I'm really bad at this too and my friends know it. But mm-hmm. I'll, I'll do it for like four weeks at a time then I'll give up. Mm-hmm. But I'll Oh, I've measure. never dieted. Yeah. yeah. I'd be it's, terrible at that. It's not fun. Yeah. I hate it. I love I really do like food mm-hmm. and I like not measuring my food because then I feel like like it's a weird relationship with it. Yeah. Um but my parents, yeah, my parents think I'm crazy when I do it. But mm-hmm. it is it do is you enjoy fun. weighing it though? Yeah, yeah, it is fun when it's like I have the thing and I'll take like one like like a tablespoon of peanut butter, maybe I need thirty two grams usually. Uh-huh. Just put one tablespoon, it's the perfect amount. I'm like, oh, I did and you're it. Like, Fuck yeah. yeah. I guess like, I'm a magi- magician I'm Walter White. Now. I'm Walter White <laughs> up in this. <laughs> yeah. Um so Going back, we went to journalism. We went to the freelance podcasting after that, right? Mm-hmm. So we, you became an – I say we like it was, it was me and you. Uh, <laughs> you were there the whole yeah, time. the whole time. Mom. I was rooting for you in the background. <laughs> you, you made the switch to becoming an independent producer after you'd gone home and, you know, spent those three months in, in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and really thought about things. Mm-hmm. So what prompted – was it this class or, or something else that prompted the move to New York or is it just say is in New York like that that place of opportunity uh or was it you already knew that you were going to be in the in the class or you had a job lined up mm-hmm. uh, or was it kind of just like let me let me go to New York because it's New York yeah um I've never had that view of New York I've always been very like I could live in New York I could not it's fine either way a lot of people have their romantic ideas about it and are like I gotta have my years there Got to do my time, whatever. Um, When I moved home to Pittsburgh for the summer, I applied to all kinds of things, mostly producing jobs that were really similar to the one that I had just been doing, but in other locations. So I was like in the final round of an interview for a job in like Iowa City and had an interview lined up for a job in Vermont and a couple other producing jobs in random locations because I was pretty open to moving anywhere. Um, that's what that random summer in central Pennsylvania proved to me. Um, I was in a really boring setting, but I really liked my life because I was doing radio. So I was like, okay, that proves to me that I could, I could move anywhere and and be pretty happy if I get, you know, a job in this field. Um, but I pretty spur of the moment applied to our fellowship here at Stony Brook. It popped up one day on an email list I'm on. And it was pretty late in the application process, like June. Mm -hmm. And the application took like kind of long to do. And I wasn't like that excited about the program, but I did take the time because I had nothing on my plate. And um, I got in 
Kathy, the head of our fellowship, told me I was the last person they let in. And, yeah, it just seemed, like, distinct from the other opportunities I was applying for in that it was tasking me to make a show. And I had this show in mind that I came up with midway through college but didn't feel equipped to make it yet. And I was like, okay, this is the least financially responsible decision to, like, move to New York for this thing that's, like, not a job. Um, But let's do it. So so you had – so I'm assuming this is after you'd gotten into the program, right? So you you were told that you can get in, you can be a part of the fellowship. Mm -hmm. You didn't have a job lined up or anything, and you're like, I got into this program. It's going to push me to make this show. Mm Mm-hmm. Fuck it. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, I obviously had to talk to my mom because I didn't have much money in savings. Um, And my parents. What college graduate does at (laughs) this point. It's true. Uh, I spent all of my savings to the rest of them to to move here, like on the overhead of the apartment and everything. Mm -hmm. Um, It's funny. My parents were more fuck it than I was. Really? um, Which shows, you know, how supportive they are and how lucky I am to have them. Um, they had faith in you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think they had seen my creativity be kind of killed by being a producer on someone else's show. So they were excited by this idea. And I was nervous about it because this show I'm making is an idea I've had for a long time. And I've always wanted to make it, but in a way I've been putting it off because I don't want to fail at making it. So saying yes to this opportunity was really exciting, but it was also really scary Mm -hmm. because, you know, it was finally uh, something or someone telling me like, okay, time to finally independently produce your own podcast. Right. So. And give you that like push of like, this is how you've got to do it. These are some of the things you need to work on. Yeah. I think that is really important, especially for you in the kind of show format you want to do Mm -hmm. because it's more of that narrative show structure. Mm -hmm. Whereas me, Tony hates me when I want to talk to him about it. I'm like, I just want to sit down and talk to people. (laughs) All right. Every time he's like, hey, people love podcasts like this. They do. They Mm do. And, um. I mean, him coming from the radio background, you know, shout out Tony Deck, who's also one of the uh, founders of this program. Mm-hmm. Great person. I, I love you, Tony. I love this format more, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I didn't want to change that. But for you, you want to do that, that like really structured, like, you know, well put together show, which takes mm-hmm. a lot more investment, in my yeah. opinion. Like this is I set it up and here we are. Right. We're talking. Mm-hmm. It's a very different way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, so I think I think the training is much more important for that. And knowing that you're going to do it the right way when you do it. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, what was hard for me in my first job out of college was that it was ultimately on an interview style show. So not exactly something like this, but segments where it was interview into next interview into next interview. Um, So there was very little storytelling as well. And jobs on more narrative shows are the ones that, like, I would love to get. But I technically don't have that experience working on, like, a radio lab or a reply all or something that, like, takes you, like, on a trip, Mm -hmm. you know. So I think this opportunity to make this show um, is my way of being like, this is my first job working on a narrative show. Like, here it is, you know. I got to give the opportunity to myself. Right, right. That way I have it in my back pocket for when I do apply to those kinds mm-hmm. of jobs. 
So let's jump into talking about the grandma files now. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So obviously Keep bringing for, it up. <laughs> no, for our class, we've mentioned our podcast so many uh-huh. times. We've had pitches. We can talk about them constantly. But I'm going to have you talk about it again. Okay. Because uh, obviously the people that I have listening to this podcast, we got to, you know, we got to get our podcast cross out of people. Cross-promote. Cross-promote, <laughs> yeah. Um, so let's go into you, you know, talking about the, the inspiration, mm-hmm. uh, the process of creating it. And all the things that are going behind the scenes of you creating the grandma files. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, taking a step past that, so I don't forget later on, I also want to talk about the strifes you have with being a freelance podcaster. Oh, man. Because I know there's so many of those. <laughs> I want to get into strife that. Strife is the right word. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So the grandma files is um, it's a narrative podcast that... I am working on. You cannot listen to it yet, <laughs> but hopefully you can in the fall of 2019. And uh, it's a project that I came up with midway through college when I did a long form writing project on my grandma Doris. My grandma Doris died when I was in high school. Um, I didn't like her tons when I was a kid. Um, She's just kind of like my grumpy babysitter. And I don't mean this in a mean way, but she always felt like my other grandma. I've always been close with my dad's mom, but she being my mom's mom, I just never took the time to get to know. But I knew that she provided a really interesting life for my mom. And uh, I felt like I had unfinished business with her and I, I wanted to research her. So I started recording a couple aunts and uncles on that side of my family. Um, my mom's the youngest of six, so there are a lot of sources to talk to about my grandma, um, which is good, too, because my grandma was a really polarizing person. So everyone I've interviewed about her has a different opinion of her. And it just revealed some of the craziest stories I've ever heard in my life. And I was, like, mind blown that they had been, like, kind of right under my nose, like, in my own family this whole time. Um, So it got me thinking about, you know, unanswered questions and unaddressed things we have about our grandmas. Um, You know, not everyone's like me who didn't like their grandma. Some people love their grandma so much that they hold her on a pedestal and and don't get to know uh, some of her more intimate stories, too. Some people have their grandmas pass even earlier than I did and don't get to know them for that reason. So it's a narrative show where each story is an individual file. And... um, they're varying lengths. I mean, some episodes are going to be a 30-minute story. Some are going to be three 10-minute stories, um, some two. Uh, but it's going to be a show where I take a big backseat as a host and talk to people that want to interview family members and their own grandmas and talk about things that they haven't addressed. Mm-hmm. And so far, I've gotten some really compelling tape. And what's really fun about this show is that everyone wants to talk about their grandma. Everyone when wants they to talk about, about their it, grandma. As as hear it. Everyone yeah. wants to talk about their grandma. Like I, it's been so funny since I moved to New York. Like I'll be at a party and like I'll just bring up the idea of the show mm-hmm. and people will just drunkenly be like, "Well, I gotta tell, tell you about <laughs> my grandma." <laughs> I'm actually thinking about having a party at my apartment where. Um, I like set out my recorder and be like, go in my closet and tell me like a drunk story about your grandma before you leave or something like that, just to have little uh, B-sides or Mm -hmm. extra things to throw in the show. But it's been really fun and it's it's really cool too to empower people to record their own stuff. It's a lot of me um, 
arranging for people to interview their mom or their aunt or their grandpa or their own grandma. And, you know, I'm going up to Albany tomorrow to record a acquaintance of mine and her grandma. And you're like tying these families back together in yeah. a sense. Because I think even for me, like I, I was pretty close with my grandma when I was younger, mm-hmm. but like you get busy as you get older and mm-hmm. you like don't really talk to them as much and just yeah. like sit down and have a conversation. And like, I don't even know how I would go about doing that. Cause for me, there's this weird like immigration gap that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause yeah. I even have that with my parents. So it's even more with my grandma. But mm. the thing is like, I was always tight with my grandma. Like mm-hmm. we were always cool. But like, I just haven't like by the time I really stopped talking to her, you know, I was already, I was already, like maybe 10. And now I'm, you know, in my twenties, like it's been so long that I haven't really like sat down and just talked to my grandma. Right. Um. So I think, you know, giving them a format to talk and kind of push that conversation, they have a talk that they would have never had otherwise. Totally. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, I'm having people, you know, investigate unaddressed things. I mean, for like little sneak peeks here and there, you know, I'm talking with someone who wants to know more about the death of her great grandmother. Um, I'm talking with someone whose grandma is Mennonite, which is something that's often confused with Amish, but it's a little different. Um, what is it? I think you mentioned this before. But it's a branch of the Episcopal Church of like Christianity, but okay. Mennonite people live in like Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and a lot of them wear like conservative dress. Okay. Um, Literally, the only thing I can think of is Meta Knight from the Smash games. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only thing I can think <laughs> of right avatar. now. My brain will not yeah, yeah, yeah. stop thinking about that. So <laughs> no, just imagine that. people in no. that. <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I just had a friend record this weekend with her grandma who is gay and she's gay too. So mm-hmm. they talk about their coming out stories. You know, some a lot of it too is just topics that, you know, have not been addressed. Um, so, uh yeah, it's super cool. So mm-hmm. I'm going to leave a link. By the time that I actually put this podcast out, it'll mm-hmm. probably be like a couple probably like a couple of weeks, if not months down the line. Sure. Ideally by then, Grandma Files is out. It'll be some sneak peeks. So sneak peeks are already out and stuff like that. So if anything, right. that will be there. I could definitely put them on like SoundCloud yeah. or something like that. So mm-hmm. I'll, have, I'll have those linked in, in the bio of this uh, mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, and hopefully if, you know, the episodes are already out by then, I'll mm-hmm. have the full episodes. Cool. Uh, so taking a step, one thing I hate myself doing right now, I can feel myself You're like, saying, take um, a step back. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking, I'm saying ums so often and I want to address it for anyone that's no, listening I, and I don't watching. Think you, um, I can, I'm, I, you know, when you get in your head and you know, you've, you've been saying it like over and over again. Yeah. But I would say as an audio editor who like is spending a lot of her time with ums, mm-hmm. I'm not hearing tons from you. I feel like I'm counting more in people my head. do more. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. All right. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh-huh. I'm, I'm, I'm in my head about it, uh-huh. but I'm, I'm glad it wasn't that many. Mm-hmm. So the grandma files will be linked. Uh, hopefully you guys take some time Thanks, listen dude. to that. Of course. Mm-hmm. And then now I want to talk about this, those stripes of, of podcast editing oh, and you know, yeah. the job of freelancing. Mm-hmm. You've only been in New York for about five five months, you said? No, yeah. so it should have been around when the program started, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, literally then, two days before the program started. That's all. That's mm-hmm. amazing. That's an awesome story. <laughs> uh, so you, you started, I did it again. Um, I did it again. You started, you started the program. You came two days before the program started. So you didn't have a career set in place and you chose to become that freelance editor. Yeah. So how did you go about finding those positions, working those jobs and balancing that to the point where you can actually manage living in New York? Because that's not a feat that's small. That's very difficult. Right. Yeah. Um, it was pretty naive of me. Um, and, you know, for full transparency, like I do come from a place of privilege where like 
I'm financially independent, but like I have a mom who I could call up and be like, a hundred bucks, please. Yeah. You know, so um, I did move to New York with one job. I moved to New York with one of my producing jobs, um, my lowest paying one. Uh, and I had in mind that I would get a second or a third to fill out my work schedule. And as I was applying to those, my first month here, I I did a lot of favors for rich people. So <laughs> I had a woman who I was like escorting to doctor's appointments, uh, who was how paying you, me to find positions like that. I've never uh, even you know, that was a thing. <laughs> you babysit for one rich Upper West Side mom, mm-hmm. and then she just connects, connects you to you all to, of them. Sense. And uh, you know, I babysat for a couple of kids who you know are richer than I'll ever be. And I know those kids. Yeah, I hate those kids. <laughs> but the thing is, this is this is the one reason the one reason that I let it go is that because I see there are some kids that you know at the gym I go to they'll come in they're eighteen mm-hmm. they're driving Maseratis BMWs Mercedes Ugh. I'm like where do you go from here I never There's, think I'll have a car <laughs> if you're in Manhattan you don't need it it's okay mm-hmm. yeah totally I'm just gonna stay in Manhattan my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> there's some people that are like that I've seen some people that I've talked to in Manhattan they're just like mm-hmm. I've just been here down mm-hmm. on your car train yeah. so it's fine couldn't mm-hmm. do that but these kids it's, I always think in the back of my mind and this is my way of rationalizing not being mad at them mm-hmm. is that one day you're gonna be like where do I go from here like mm-hmm. what what is their goal like how do they think of of you know the next thing and you know reaching for something above where they are because yeah. I think for me the one reason I'm happy to have grown up with my seeing my parents go from nothing to something is knowing the the you know, the effort and the drive that it takes Mm -hmm. to become something, to become someone. And if you start with everything, it's like, where do you go? Right. You got to find something to just kind of fill that, that for lack of a better word, void, Mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, thing that you just need to do the passion, whatever it may be, it becomes more difficult to find for them. I feel like, but maybe, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, something I realized with some of these kids, they babysit and I won't like list specific examples. Cause like, I don't know, maybe they listen to podcasts, but, (laughs) Um, you know, like when you have what seems like everything, you know, your everything is really small. Like some of these kids I babysat were pretty unaware of, uh, a lot of the rest of New York. Um, and that was one of the first things that really struck me when I moved here is that like your reality of the city is what you can afford. And these kids could afford to take cabs everywhere. So one time when I came running in almost late, to a babysitting shift, sweating, they were like, why are you sweating? And I was like, oh, I ran from the train. And they were like, you take the the train? train? (laughs) Like, yeah, most people in New York take the train. And they were like, oh, like, just like eyes so big. And, and, you know, it's, and they lived on, you know, it's, I I babysat for kids that lived on, you know, the 42nd floor of high-rise buildings, stuff like that. And you get this gorgeous view, but like, you got to feel like your world's pretty small up there. So I didn't babysit for long. I found a second production job my second month here. Um, And since then, those have been my two main sources of income. One of them's my rent money. One of them's my food money. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I've picked up other shows. Uh, I work on just to like list it off, um, you know, a podcast about poetry, a podcast about tech. Um, I'm working on a show, uh, a pilot of a show with the head of our fellowship, Kathy, which is about mother daughter relationships. Um, 
I just got a gig with Vice on a show about fashion. Yeah. Um, And uh, have, you know, freelanced, recorded for a couple other shows since I got here and um, try to pick up like an odds and ends job, like doing transcriptions every other week just to like have that extra hundred bucks in my back pocket. That makes a difference. Yeah. That could be like you're eating like a king or queen. Right. Or you're just not eating. Like that could be the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the difference between like IPA and like high life. Yeah. yeah. So, (laughs) um, which matters to me. I love both, but But sometimes you really crave the former. Former. Yeah. Um, So... I think what's been good about my work schedule since I moved here is like, yeah, I have these two, now three solid things um, that, you know, pretty consistently bring in paychecks. But it's a lot of being my own boss. I would say the number one strife about freelancing is making sure people pay you because people pay you after you do the work and they don't know you. You're just someone on email to them. So I've waited for an invoice that's been six months late before. For work wow. I did this summer. That's disrespectful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really disrespectful yeah. experience. And, you know, I have a I have a spreadsheet on my Google Drive called Bitch Better Have My Money. <laughs> and I I keep in it. Rihanna you know. would be proud. Thank you. <laughs> um, if anyone's interested, there's a great McSweeney's article. McSweeney's is like a humor website um, called Bitch Better Have My Money, but for freelancers. And okay. it's like a rewriting of the lyrics. And it's okay. all about this invoice strife. So uh, check it out. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I keep track of when people pay me, when everything's due. What's hard, too, about being a freelancer is people ask, like, what your work is worth a lot of the time. Because a lot of people don't know what a producer does and what specializations it takes to make a podcast and how much they should pay for it. So The time and the effort, just the raw energy it takes to actually – clean everything up edit it and mm-hmm. produce a finalized product a lot of people just don't understand the value in that and yeah i think maybe one way because i didn't mention this before one way to go about that is maybe recording the session of you editing things and just being like this is what it took yeah mm-hmm. like yeah so they actually know what goes behind the scenes i don't know right. but it, it is a weird thing because then that the independency of it is mm-hmm. you're just relying on the relationship with the person you're working with and mm-hmm. hoping that it's going to be a good relationship. So it's so difficult. Yeah. And I think, you know, talking about independence, like I work mostly with independence. So everyone's on a different budget. Right. And I know what it's like to independently produce. So I understand what it's like to be on a shoestring budget. So I end up working for, like, a pretty wide range, um, which is fine with me, you know. Uh, But something to note is that I basically follow these guidelines from AIR, which is this organization that stands for Association of Independence in Radio. And it's kind of like a pseudo-union for those of us out here producing that don't get to be part of a union. And they have guidelines for um, how much these services, like, generally cost. So when people ask what my rate is, I'll usually, you know, point them to that spreadsheet and be like, it's just not I should earn this many dollars an hour. But tell me what your budget is and we'll go from there. So they have like a gauge of like where it actually falls. It's not just you saying this is this is it. And they're Mm -hmm. like, why? Right. This is, you know, makes sense based on what I'm doing. Totally. You know, the value of it in terms of Mm -hmm. time put in and everything that that's taken into account. So it's something that's more reliable for them. Yeah. I would say also a strife of being independent and, and also like 
something that's very gatekeeping about like independent media in general is like the overhead for it. Like there is a privilege to have a recorder and a mic ready to go record an interview for someone day of. You know, I just had a job interview and the person interviewing me asked like, do you have your own recording equipment? This job would require that. And it's like, yeah, I I do because we're in this program. Right, yeah. um, but, you know, if I didn't, in order to have that job, I would have to pay around seven hundred dollars for just equipment, just to have yeah. the job. Like that's crazy. That's an intense fee just to start. Yeah. yeah, and anytime you have like an economic gatekeeping to an industry, you're gatekeeping other people who are economically disadvantaged. You right. know, if you can't tell from my voice, I'm a white woman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, but it's it's only harder for people of different identities for me mm. too. Yeah, I'm a white gay woman, but there's plenty of white gay women in radio, right. and we all know that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's so many there's so many ladders of difficulties, and mm-hmm. that's the economic one is a big factor. Mm-hmm. Being an independent producer, and not having all the equipment that you need, and all the the, the different parts of it, because then you're also hindered in how good the quality can be. So the outcome actually gets mm-hmm. affected by it. So it is difficult. Yeah, so. and people like to listen to quality. Like if you're going to listen to someone's podcast you know, beyond 30 minutes, you want it to be like a good, clean sound in your yeah. ears. Right. That's why we have these. these That's why nice, we have these, what, nice like ones. $800 mics? Right? I don't know. I have no idea. No <laughs> idea. They're, they're better than the one that I use in my college dorm, though. They're like such high quality. We're um, renting. <laughs> I, I don't own these. I wish I did. So right now you're working those three three positions. You're working on the grandma files. Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself short and long term? Maybe like the next six months, year to three, four years. I don't know Ooh. if you... Oh, also, I mean, I, I have to start off that question by saying I'm such a bad planner and I have no impulse toward planning. Like I'm kind of one of those stoner dudes who's like, what's the point, man? Like, I don't know. Um, in six months, you know, I guess that's what next fall around there. Yeah. I'd love to release the show next fall. I'd love for the grandma files to be like out in the world. Um, if I keep it in my life for too long, I will work on it forever. So I'm aiming to release the show next fall, and that would be great. Um, and, you know. There's there's this – because I remember when I first started this, and I think this is, again, one of the reasons Tony dislikes the fact that I did it this way, <laughs> is that there's so many errors when I started. But I think – the I remember this so People clearly. People love to go back and listen to, like, yeah, that the kind original, of shit. Yeah, yeah. I remember – it was just if I kept trying to get perfect, I'll never find perfect. Mm-hmm. I just need to work with it and keep rolling with the punches yeah. or else I'm not going to do anything. Yeah, absolutely. So I just kept doing that. And I remember there's so many errors at every step of the way mm-hmm. and I just kept trying to just figure it out as I went along. Yeah. But I think that's important to if you want to get somewhere, you just got to start. Right. The first totally. step is the most important step is mm-hmm. in terms of not in terms of like how you do it, but the fact that you took the step in the first place. Yeah. Well, you know – as well as I do, you know, being surrounded by your tape and your mics and all that stuff. Like for me, it's like, I just want like other people to like hear the stuff I have. Like it feels like I'm just surrounded by all these files right now. And I would love if next fall other people could like hear that shit and let me know what they think of it. And from there, so another thing I should tell you about freelancing is that the main reason I am freelancing is so that I have time to work on this show. Um, 
the reason why I never launched a podcast while I worked in Boston full time on a radio show is that the last thing I wanted to do when I came home from podcasting all day was podcast some more. So freelancing really helps me find those gaps in my day to work on the grandma files. And I'm really grateful for that. But once it's out in the world, I'm going to apply for more full-time producing gigs, I think. And I really want to work on shows that um, are about topics I care more about. That's something I've never really given myself credit for. Not to say I don't have passions for poetry, fashion, and tech. (laughs) Um, But, you know, something that I feel like I could more editorially contribute to and find stories for and that sort of thing. And have confidence in whatever it is you're contributing. And you know that, like, you should get this point to them because it might actually have an integral part of the final uh, output that you get from the show. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think what's hard about freelancing is that, like, I'm not necessarily surrounded by many mentors. I really admire the people that I work with. Um, But, like, I'm kind of the audio guy for a lot of people right now. So I would love for my next job, maybe six months from now, if I get a full-time one, like, you know, to work with someone who, like, I look up to again. Because I'm someone who really values having, like, adults tell them what to do, you know. It's really hard for me to have the willpower to work at my laptop every day. And, um, you know, would love a place to, like, eat lunch. That's another thing about being a freelancer, like – Working a lot in coffee shops and, right. you know, some of them let you eat your lunch, but some of them, some yeah, of them don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been yelled at. <laughs> so. Yeah, this because I, I can't, I personally can't work at home or like at my own Me desk. Me either. Because it's just like, it, it just makes everything. It's mm-hmm. like there's work, but then there's also like I could just watch a YouTube video right now. Mm-hmm. But then recently I've just been going to library and just like hiding Me out there. Me too. I've been going to library. Libraries I'm are like, underrated. Hey, coworkers. They're underrated. Because <laughs> library is like yeah. that one place where it's like you're meant to loiter. Oh yeah, You're it's the only. Just go there and loiter. Yeah, Zadie Smith said in a in her book of essays that was released last year. It was it was an essay about public libraries, but something to the effect of you know, the public library is the last public space where you can sit, uh, without paying for it. Yeah, you yeah. know, and like that's the value of it. And it's insane that I haven't been utilizing it at all until probably recently again. Because mm-hmm. after college, in college, I was always at the library studying mm-hmm. or whatever. And then I took, you know, I got back home and I took eight months not doing it. And I'm just like always there. And it's just a space where I can focus on my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And it's nice to, you know, have a place to just sit down and do something. And then when I pull up YouTube, I'm like, don't, don't do that. You're, <laughs> You're like, at the left. Yeah. Well, do you go to NYPL? I go to, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like the big one? No, I go to, um, there's just a public library near my house. Oh, okay. It's just a regular, like, New York public library. Got it, yeah. yeah. Well, but like. Not the big one. Yeah. yeah, well, all public libraries deserve respect, but, um. You know, I go to NYPL and yeah, I do not let myself dick around because like I'm because the environment. Well, that beautiful ceiling, I'm like it's staring (laughs) right down at me. Like if I dick around, like it's gonna crush me. (laughs) It's gonna come down on me. That celestial mural is just gonna like. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so, short term, you see yourself doing right, working, getting the grandma files out. Mm -hmm. Ideally, getting a full time position. Long term, probably not thinking about it too much. You just kind of figure it out as you go because you're not into the planning thing yeah I think what's helped me out too is like freelancing has helped me realize that it's hard to find a job in this city but when I do find them these freelance ones you know they come across me really quickly so it's made me pretty hopeful about you know when I go full force with wanting to find a full-time job you know I've met a lot of really nice people in audio since I moved here 
there's a lot of people innovating and starting projects all the time. And, it's a changing landscape right now. Yeah. You know, I thought Boston was like the big audio place. And I was like, am I making a mistake leaving here? Because there were two public radio stations. Um, but yeah, New York's a complete different thing because it's full of people that aren't in audio but want to be. And that's cool. That, it's that trans- you're in that transitional period. Mm-hmm. Right. And the absolute last section of the podcast, mm-hmm. right? Because we're finally here. It's been a long time. <laughs> Sorry, uh, No, no. I'm happy. I'm happy we kept going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last ab- the section that I like having my guests do is saying a quote, something that fa- they find important. It could be anything. I've had people say, listen to your mom. I've had people say like really, really oh. like important things. Uh, people saying just like quotes that they know of, like maybe from like Muhammad Ali. Like it was one of them, Ooh. right? So anything that you find important, something that's like your mantra that you you know think about on a, on a frequent basis. Mm. Oh, that's hard, and I'm gonna seem so inauthentic if I like sit here and think about it oh, too you can long. Take the time to think about it, yeah, because that's that's probably my favorite question to ask. Because everyone has something I think that is central to them or even if they don't have a quote that they can just say off the bat yeah they have something that they can say that they know is you know part of them and their personality and what they're working towards and it kind of brings mm-hmm. everything together and i love that about it yeah yeah um i i can say the quote that my therapist told me this morning <laughs> um <laughs> shout out to uh marcia um She's really sweet and gives me little quotes when we, like, end our sessions. And this one was just cheesy enough, uh, but also just poignant enough that, like, I think I'm going to listen to it a lot right now, which is peace begins when expectations end. Um, I've heard of that one before. I like that one. Yeah, yeah. Someone said it somewhere to someone, (laughs) and uh, now it's on a Hallmark card. Right, right. (laughs) Um, But I I like that because it, uh, you know, hits me in the face a little bit. I'm really bad at, you know, taming my expectations, but it's also something that I – I feel like that phrase has been proven in my life since I moved to New York. I moved here pretty much with no expectations. I wasn't even that excited to move here. I was excited by the program. And ever since I've moved here, like, aside from the daily frustrations of, like, (laughs) smelling hot trash and, like, bumping into people ad nauseum. It's about to be back. Like, I've You didn't live through the summer in New York, right? (laughs) I I lived through August. August, okay. Okay. It gets gross. It gets gets bad. Hot trash. It's grody. That's the word for it. It's grody. But, like, aside from all of that New York stinkiness, like, I have generally been at peace because I've had no expectations of myself. You know, it's just where I live now. And I have this skill set and I'm just doing what I can with it. And opportunities are coming and going and, you know, I need to keep staying the course with keeping my expectations at bay because, like, it feels like peace right now. So The process is the part that you fall in love with, not the the end goal. Yeah. And that's – it's a good way to – because I'm I'm an the whole reason I made this podcast. I'm an anxious person. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to just bring yourself down, breathe a little, mm-hmm. and keep going. Yeah. Uh, and that on that note, we will end the podcast here. Okay. To anyone who listened to the podcast, watched it on YouTube, don't forget to you know like, share, subscribe, 
if you love the content, let people know about it. Mm-hmm. Grandma Files will be in the link of wherever I put this. I am happy to be recording again. Our guest, Becca. Oh, thank Until you, Until next Ron. time. Peace out, Bye, guys. Bye.